welcome to the Gontrepreneur.com podcast. My name is Shango Lose and I will be your host today. Dr. Michelle Sexton is a naturopathic doctor, herbalist, and formerly a midwife, currently in private practice in San Diego. She began her formal study of phytochemicals with a degree in horticulture and is specialized in the phytochemical analysis of botanical medicines. She completed a three-year NIH-funded postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Washington where she conducted a clinical study examining the effects of cannabis in patients with multiple sclerosis. She owns and is Chief Science Officer of Phytolab Cannabis Analytics in Washington State. She also served as editor and advisor on the American Herbal Pharmacopeia Cannabis Monograph. She has been a consultant to the Washington State Liquor Control Board on the implementation of I-502. She is also a member of the International Cannabinoid Research Society, the International Association for Cannabinoid Medicines, and the Society of Cannabis Clinicians. Dr. Sexton is Executive Medical Research Director at the Center for the Study of Cannabis and Social Policy. She's also an avid surfer, rock climber, and loves to play with her grandchildren. Welcome, Dr. Sexton. Thank you. So thanks again for being with us. We enjoyed our print interview with you so much that we wanted to take another opportunity to talk and delve more deeply into cannabis testing in this podcast. Um, Towards the end, we will also discuss your recent article on cannabis and pregnancy. But let's start with cannabis testing first. As the medical and recreational markets evolve in several states, producers are experiencing frustration with their lab testing results. They've had the experience of sending what they believe to be similar samples to different labs, and they receive significantly different lab results. And this is leaving many producers thinking that the science of cannabis testing is questionable. Would you speak to that topic and share what you uh, have been seeing happening and what you find might be the cause for this disconnect? Well, I think everyone has been observing and there's been reports across states of variability in potency results, particularly on cannabis products, whether it's flour or another derived product. And since this is science, there seems to be a perception that it should be infallible, I think. But when you look at where this industry has evolved from, I think it's pretty self-explanatory that the typical standards that are put in place for an industry um, happens at a level that's way upstream from the consumer receiving a result. And the Schedule One status of cannabis has prevented the normal channels who get involved in this type of proficiency work and standardization from doing so. So meaning that um, the, the way that the individual states are making their law, they're more, more based on ideals than what can actually happen in reality? Yes. Well, 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 in what ways? Where do you see the disconnect to be then versus, I mean, you were involved with Washington State developing um, their certification, and we've got a a lot of certified labs, which leads those of us who are producers to think, well, if they're all certified, they should all give me the same results. Why why isn't that happening? Well, because there's there's a difference between certification and proficiency. Hmm. Uh, That's that's the bottom line. Um, certification means you've met a lot of general standard laboratory practice on paper 
how how business is conducted in the laboratory every day is a lot of what the the certification checklist was but as far as anyone checking up on the proficiency of the work that is done within the context of that lab it's a it's a different topic altogether but that proficiency can't occur like i said because all of these upstream things haven't been addressed to start with so you're saying that the certification with the state is more um, a stopgap to make sure that the bureaucratic nature of the lab is accurate, but not so much on, on the skill set of the scientists doing the work? Uh, maybe in some cases the skill set of the scientists, but not necessarily. I think many of the labs who started out with non-scientists have now brought scientists on board. I see. But what we it's the it's the body of knowledge that we as scientists typically look to that is not there. Because the appropriate work hasn't been done on cannabis yet. Right. So for instance, when we published the cannabis monograph, the first part of it, uh, which Washington State adopted, uh, Roy Upton, the executive director, when he publishes a monograph, the the section on chemical analysis of the plant, whatever method he publishes has gone through uh, a process called validation, being validated in a laboratory setting. And there's about eight steps or so involved in validating a methodology. Um, this is done by some professional organizations who do this on a, a large scale. But because of the Schedule One status, they were unwilling to participate in a validation methodology, in doing a validation of the method for the monograph. So in a lot of ways, the labs have not been given the tools they need to do their job correctly because on a federal level, cannabis is still Schedule One, so the, the needed scientific background to do the testing hasn't even been completed yet. Correct. Wow, that puts and, us in And then if you go a step Prior to that, what we do, what we use to quantify, for instance, cannabinoids or any other phytochemical are called reference standards. And, you know, the reference standards that are available for doing this work are still in question as to the purity of them. So while we may be told, oh, this is 98% THC, there is a certifying body that would say, Yes, this is 98% THC, but they're, they've been unwilling to get involved because it's a Schedule One substance. Well, this kind of gives credence to the producer's concerns that, that the science behind it is, is in some way faulty because it may not be the science itself, but the, the base research that needs to take place so that cannabis testing as a whole can be done accurately, that hasn't been done yet. And so it makes sense that, that labs are having a difficult time getting uh, uh, consistent results. Yeah, I mean, if you just took the reference standards, say five labs bought their reference standards from five different companies, but if I bought all five of those and ran them side by side, I might actually see a different quantity, even though they should be the same quantity. Like if I measured, you know, X number of milligrams of THC from each of those five vials from different companies, what I might actually see on my instrument could be really different. 
So other industries that are more evolved than the cannabis industry, are their standards already consistent because they've done all that homework and so you wouldn't have the inconsistency between different companies you bought from? So that's unique for cannabis right now. Correct. Uh, you know, to, first of all, you have to have a, a, a method that's been validated and typically the way this is done, it's very rigorous and it's costly and takes a lot of time because a method is developed and it gets sent out to 10 to 15 laboratories who all use that exact same method and they make sure that everybody using that method can get the same answer. But they're also using the same reference standards that have been certified. Mm -hmm. So if you were doing that, we should all get the same answer. But everybody's using different methodologies. Um, none of them have been validated by one of the large bodies who does this work professionally. So, you know, those are two upstream problems. No wonder everyone is frustrated then if, if it's, it sounds like the, the testing is kind of doomed from the beginning. I don't think it's doomed. I think it, I think it fits perfectly in with the, all of the citizen science and the citizen medicine around cannabis. This is just the result and the culture of it having been black market. And so, you know, black market practices have emerged all across this industry, whether it's, you know, helping or dosing or telling patients how to use it from a, a perspective of, of citizen medicine, or, you know, if it's people trying to figure out processes, how to do extractions, on and on and on. Everybody's had to do this on their own because there hasn't been a lot of uh, professional industry or research to guide it. So I know it's kind of hard to break out a crystal ball and give me a, a future answer, but in your experience, you've been doing this a long time, um, how long do you think it might be before that background research takes place to create a standard so that all of the labs can be giving more consistent results? It, does it have to wait until uh, cannabis is unscheduled so that that research can get done, or is it just that the the you know, free market forces are doing that homework now so they can bring those standards to market, you know, sometime <clears throat> soon. Well, everybody's interested. I can tell you everybody's interested. Um, the United States Pharmacopeia, they're very interested. They publish methods. Um, the AOCS, the American Organization of Analytical Chemists, AOAC, excuse me, uh, the American Oil Chemist Society, um, they're all interested and they're all looking into it and they want to hear about it and they're asking people to tell them about it and they're forming groups to talk about it. But the fact remains that as long as it stays on Schedule 1, that many of them have their hands tied or they won't get involved in doing their professional work on that topic. Mm, I understand. Um, for, for some of our non-scientist um, listeners, would you explain a little bit about the, what the monograph is and what it means? <clears throat> a monograph, I mean, the, the term itself means a single topic. And so um, how herbal medicines and even now pharmaceutical medicines are uh, def well defined is in a document called a monograph. And so that monograph has one topic. And uh, for herbs, we've for a long time, uh, and in the pharmacopoeia, there's been a general outline that you follow when you write a monograph. And so with, with herbs, it started as 
If you're going to go collect them in the wild, how do you positively identify them growing in the wild? Because there's often plants that can easily be confused and one may be poisonous and the other not. So, you know, as a field herbalist, you could get that basic information and then you could go on and it describes all of the botany. So if it came down to comparing two plants and getting the non-toxic or the toxic one, you could go to more specifics on how the flower looks or leaf, that type of thing. And then it goes on to describe how it's been used in, you know, historically, how people have figured out that these plants have medical value and what kinds of things is in the written record that it has been used for. And then in the modern monograph, you know, with the, the chemical revolution, now we've gone on to describe, well, if you want to look at particular active constituents, um, you know, how do you do that? And that's, that's the analytical portion. And then there's, the monograph also covers things on cultivation, pests, managing pests, you know, soil type, just real basic information about growing, gathering, and using the herb. In a lot of ways, that sounds like it would be the go-to document for anybody who cares about cannabis. I mean, so many people do internet research to find out what they need to know about cannabis and as we all know internet research your miles mileage may vary right but it sounds like the um the 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 monograph would have you know the best science available today almost like a mini encyclopedia on this one flower correct because i mean in the writing of the document roy he finds the experts in the world in the field on all those topics so really it should be the most current, up-to-date information that's available, all compiled in one document. When did the last one come out? Uh, we published it originally in 2012 and there was an update. Um, and that's, that's the one that the Washington State Liquor Control Board adopted to, to guide the quality control of, of the cannabis in the adult market. And um, typically it all comes out in one big book and the second part of that book after the, the quality control is the therapeutic compendium. Um, because we wanted to push the quality control one out to be used in Washington State, we separated them into two documents. So the therapeutic compendium is, is on its last legs of review. Mm -hmm. And hopefully by the first of the summer, there's going to be the most up-to-date uh, review of clinical literature on the use of the whole plant for many, many, across many conditions. If somebody wanted to find out more about this monograph, um, what would be the appropriate search term? I would just search American Herbal Pharmacopoeia Cannabis. Right on, there we go. So going back to um, the ideas of producers and they're trying to find a lab that will give them consistent results, one of the things that we've been finding is that producers are shopping around for a lab that tends to give them the results that they want more than necessarily what may be accurate results. What do you see as the downsides of shopping around for a lab that just gives you the results that you're looking for? For example, a high THC potency or something. Karma. <laughs> oh, that's the easy answer. Um, well, I think there may come a time and it may not be too far off where there will be auditors going into these labs. We've been meeting uh, in Washington State and in conversation with the Liquor Control Board about the problems that we're seeing in the labs, and um, and that they're aware of it. They know it's a problem. 
you know, it was a, what we've done is a starting place, and we're uh, there are many of us working to continue to professionalize um, and change that. But eventually, if you're using a, a lab, you know, that is using what I call maybe still black market mm -hmm. science practices, um, and you know, they may close. Um, I don't think you're doing your product a service if you're just shopping for the answer you need or want to get paid or get your product to market. Um, we really hope that over time the hype over THC will subside and that the beautiful diversity of the plant, other cannabinoids, the terpenoid profile, you know, you don't go in a wine store and say, okay, where's the wine with the 13% alcohol? You know, you go, or your, your IPA, you know, it, it's, it's about all of it. All of the, how much sweetness is there and how much bitterness is there or, or what other flavors you like or the smell you like of it. So uh, I think the hype will die down and I think that there will, proficiency will come. I can see how um, here in Washington the environment is evolving from people just relying on THC to now talking about terpene profiles and 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 what the terpenes the healing powers in that themselves it sounds like as the industry matures um, we'll we'll get past our reliance on THC <clears throat> well it's gonna I think it's gonna be hard uh, I have only been in one recreational store in Washington State and I've been in a couple of dispensaries and uh, the one recreational store that I went in everything was under glass somebody told me they were allowed to smell a product in that same store. So I don't know if you ask if you get to, but it was very different from the dispensary experience where you could open a jar and really waft that aroma because we have a, a survey that's in process of being published on cannabis use and uh, smell is the number one way people say they select their cannabis. So, you know, it is, people are actually doing it um, also based on potency, but smell is the number one thing that people said was the most common factor for choosing it. Going back to your wine example, <clears throat> there's some humor in that because if, if we are selecting our cannabis based on our reaction to the smells, which in a certain way we can think of as our body is choosing the cannabis medicine that we want, but on the flip side, when you are shopping for wine, you don't usually get to, to sample or smell it. And so many of us choose based on label, right? <laughs> exactly. I'm guilty. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, what, what advice would you give for producers? If, if we started with this idea that the background, a lot of the background science that the testing is based on hasn't been done yet, and that there is inconsistency from lab to lab, you know, the, the, the frustrations of the producers are they're trying to do research and development on, on a product and, and they're getting different results, which makes it very hard to develop a product. What kind of an advice would you give them for, for finding a lab that will work for them um, when they don't have a science background to necessarily interrogate them on their science standards? I mean, what advice would you give to a producer to help them until the, the, the proper science has been done? Um, there's the American Herbal Products Association has a document on selecting an analytical laboratory. I think it's a I think it's really applicable that you read through and you ask some appropriate questions that are, you know, some baseline proficiency work. For instance, 
uh, you know, I've had the experience of asking a laboratory, how often do you run a standard curve? And just was greeted with blank stares. They didn't even know what a standard curve was. And finally somebody said, well, I think that maybe one was run three months ago. So, you know, to not know what that is, if you're working in, a, in the laboratory setting, and to only run it once a year or every few months, that's not adequate. So you want a lab who can answer that question like that and they run them regular, on, on a regular basis, maybe even every day. So even though um, probably, probably most of the producers don't have science backgrounds, if they armed themselves with that document, they'd at least have questions to be able to gauge the kind of response. You know, if you get a blank stare, that's probably, you know, not a great response. But if you, if, if the lab gives a full response that sounds accurate, even without a science background, the producer would have a, probably a better gut feeling about what the, what the lab's level of competence is. Yeah, I think there's plenty of information out there. And like I said, even just that document could give someone an, enough information to initiate a conversation on some very important points. So when, when preparing samples for a lab, um, I've heard lots of different producers have their strategies. You know, some, some like to take the, the cola to the lab so that they hopefully get the, the highest uh, potency response. And, and some say that um, if you're preparing an oil, you, you should do this or that, kind of in a certain way, kind of trying to game the system. But in the end, they, that's not going to win for them because while that might give them a good result to sell their product, if they're doing research and development and, and developing a product, they're kind of skewing their own results. So um, I've heard you speak on this before. Can you break down very specifically how you recommend a producer prepare their sample for the lab so that the producer can get the most representative answer possible? Well, I mean, this isn't my knowledge. This is standard for herbal products, whether it's in Europe or the United States or China. There are plenty of sampling plans out there. And, you know, you, you have to take an entire lot or, you know, I would say a harvest of all one plant variety that was in the same section of the greenhouse or room or field. And you back, you put that all together as a batch and it gets mixed and you quarter it several times until you're down to a smaller size. And then you take a random scoop of it. And that is a representative sample. And then you have to also consider what is the size of that batch and what's the final sample size? What's, how big does that need to be to be representative of that whole starting lot size? So that was a, this was a real failure in the Washington system that uh, they didn't implement sampling plans. So the way that you're describing it, we wouldn't even have a situation where a producer is looking at um, a, a, a lot of cannabis and then, you know, you know, I'll take this bud and this bud and this bud and this bud and send that on in. What you're saying is that's not the way to do it at all. It's, it's to you know, lay it all out on the table and, and, and quarter and quarter it and take a random scoop. So uh, if I was a producer, I'm not actually choosing my sample at all. It's, yeah. it's randomness that's choosing it. Right. Yeah, and then, you know, you have to look at the size. For instance, uh, for the I-502 package, the state says up to 7 grams. We could ask for more. Um, the monograph actually says 10 grams, 
so the monograph wasn't actually followed here. Uh, but for a five pound lot size, 10 grams is barely adequate as a representative sample. So for instance, some labs are now gaming the system by taking a smaller sample size. But if you do the math, a two gram sample size to represent an entire five pound lot would only give you like a one in 25,000 chance that you might sample something that's contaminated with a mold or a bacteria, for instance. Uh, whereas if you just even go up to a 5 gram sample, you've, you've significantly increased the chance that you're going to sample something contaminated. So in real terms, even though producers continually want to give a smaller sample, because obviously the cannabis is money, um, really it would be in their, in their best interest to give, a, give you a larger sample if they really want to find out what is the, the true nature of the flower that they're working with. Yeah, I just I think it's a matter of integrity because now you're thinking beyond just getting how much money you can get off of this crop. You're thinking to public health effects and your end consumer, and you're thinking about standardization in the, in the botanical industry and, and aligning with that industry. Mm -hmm. So you were involved with Washington when when they uh, developed their lab certifications. And you've seen how they've played out for the good and the bad. So what suggestions would you offer other states who are moving towards normalization and setting up certifications for their own labs? What, what have we learned from the implementation here that states that follow Washington can learn from our wins and our losses and do better than we did? Well, I think there's data analysis yet that needs to be done. Um, like looking at all these microbiological tests that we're performing here in Washington State and you know doing the data analysis did we have enough positives to recommend that this is a test that always needs to be done or for instance the microbiological limits uh, the monograph even states that these are not intended to be pass or fail numbers they're general guidelines and we have to take into account certain atmospheric conditions or weather that could precipitate like more powdery mildew and so then we might want to consider adjusting those levels upward, uh, testing for the toxins that fungus make instead of the actual amount of, of mold on the plant material. So I think we need to take a hard look at, at some of that microbiological data. Um, I think for the potency, I think the, a real disservice that's being done is everybody reporting results like for THC to two decimal points. I think even if you're not a scientist, it implies a degree of accuracy to you, right? <laughs> and Which isn't actually there. <laughs> no, it's not there. I mean, when we give those sorts of numbers, uh, when we do research-based science, we've run at least a triplicate sample, and, and usually it's in triplicate at least three or four times before you result, and, and there's an error bar involved, right? So you show the standard deviation to either side of that mean. And you know, the bigger your standard deviation, the greater the variation. So I'm probably like, people don't know what I'm talking about because I'm using my hands over here. Um, but I think that my point is, and I said this to the Liquor Control Board, and I think it's in the checklist, that it should be reported in a range. Unless people can prove that they really got, have that degree of accuracy. But there's nobody out there enforcing that degree of accuracy. So... Like you said, we have a lot. Uh, 
we we did a small survey of some plant here and showed a four percent difference from top from the crown to the bottom of the plant uh, in THC content. So you know we could report it in a range, and that that should be good enough. If it's ten to twelve percent, you know we know that this is relatively high potency, and it doesn't have to be ten point six three, you know, because that's really not what you're getting as the consumer. It gives a false sense of accuracy. Yes. Yeah. Very good. So let's move on. Um, you recently wrote an article for Ladybug Magazine explaining the relationship between cannabis and pregnancy, and it was hugely popular and went viral, and a lot of people were talking about it. And so I want to, you know, just kind of hit on that while we've got you here today. So we've already talked about how it's been uh, a challenge to study cannabis while it's still a Schedule One drug. Would you review for us the state of the science and what you read it to mean um, around whether or not pregnant mothers should be using cannabis? Well, you know, because it's been considered a drug of abuse and because just doing any research, you know, in pregnancy, it's very difficult because now you're exposing, you know, a developing fetus to a drug as well. Um, so it's, it's, been, it's generally been viewed through the lens of looking at women who are, are drug abusers. So you have to, you know, right off the bat think most of the data out there is being viewed through that lens. And, and many of these women who were involved in the surveys or the studies may have also been using other prescription drugs. So there hasn't really been enough good studies of just cannabis use in pregnancy. Um, there is some longitudinal data showing, you know, birth weight's fine, head circumference is fine, there's not poor outcomes, we know it's not a teratogen, it doesn't cause birth defects. And so when you see a beautiful baby at birth and your child develops normally in the first years of life, the conclusion logically is, well, I smoked all during pregnancy and my child is just fine. Um, I think, you know, what's now coming out in the emerging research is, um, we know more about that developing brain and how the cannabinoid receptor, CB1, which where THC binds, uh, is really involved in the migration of neurons on their pathways out to make connections. So that was my point, is uh, I think it's awesome that it's not a teratogen, and I think it can be valuable for women uh, suffering from severe hyperemesis or being very sick with morning sickness, because we don't have good or safe drugs uh, there's maybe one drug on the market, and it's not always effective. Uh, but again, you know, no drug is the best drug in pregnancy. Is is I think all doctors should have that viewpoint, honestly, and I would hope all parents would. Um, just being really thoughtful about it, you know, and being open-minded to yeah, there is a small amount of literature that says the things that I just said, you'll have a normal birth, you'll have a normal child, it will, the child will develop normally in early years, and how about those migratory pathways and brain development into adulthood? So from reading the original article that you wrote, um, you spoke a bit about how um, though the, the, the child may be born um, not looking like there were any challenges, that, that some of the surveys suggest that as the child grows up and reaches, you know, adolescence, that there that there may possibly be some, you know, neurological impacts. But the problem is is that um, there's no really good studies on that yet. Um, 
if if a pregnant mother was trying to weigh out for herself whether or not to have cannabis um, not 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 recreationally because you've already said that you know the best drug is not having a drug when you're pregnant so I would follow that but but let's say that she's having um, very significant nausea and she doesn't want to take the pharmaceuticals that would normally be given for that because that is just another drug how would you suggest that that she you know think through weighing trying to get through the pregnancy with this extreme nausea versus an unstudied risk of having cannabis well i think there's there's a lot of other alternative options you know there's acupuncture um there's ginger <laughs> you know i i was horribly ill with with morning sickness uh peppermint worked really well for me uh, you know, so I think there's other options to try before going to a really strong drug like cannabis. But even then, uh, you know, if you go through everything, I think this is one case where I think you should have everything else fail and then go to cannabis and then go to a, a CBD dominant variety because cannabidiol or CBD doesn't bind like THC does to the CB1 re receptor and it's also been shown to be effective for nausea. So, you know, that would be an alternative and to just use the lowest necessary dose for the shortest time period. And it sounds like when choosing the particular strain one would take, just because it's sold as a CBD, that probably wouldn't be enough. For example, like a, a Harlequin, which is two to one, you'll still end up having a lot of THC in it. You want something more like a, an ACDC or something that tests 20 to one. So the amount of actual THC in it is exceptionally low. That would be my speculation and probably my recommendation without having done a therapeutic trial on anyone. I mean, I, I don't know. That's just my guess. I'm my sure. best guess. <laughs> and, and again, here's something else that we don't have the real science yet because it's been Schedule 1 for so long and scientists haven't not been free to study the medicine. You know? Well, and I think too the you know the the return of the biodiversity with the cannabidiol rich plants. I mean, we re we have no data on that. All all of the studies have been on THC rich. Anything you find on cannabis is typically THC rich varieties. So people need to keep that in mind. When we say cannabis now, we're not necessarily talking about you know what has been out there and available. It's it's changing. It's evolving. Um, in the Ladybud article, you speak a lot about this one fascinating survey that happened with Jamaican Rastafarian women. And, you know, over the course of the article, um, you kind of uh, debunk that s survey as being reliable for science. But culturally, it's fascinating. Would you just talk a little bit about the study and about the women and about how they were taking the cannabis? Because it's, I think, I think it would be exceptionally interesting to the audience. Well, honestly, I think you should uh, interview the author <laughs> um, because I'm not an expert on her work. You know, I've reviewed it for the monograph and, um, and to write this article, but um, yeah, that was what I, I mean, the first paper, what I found interesting and what people overlook or you don't hear is that largely the women were not smoking at that time. It, in their place in the culture, that was the, mostly the men. Um, I'm sure there were women who smoked, but the women that she was hanging out with in this anthropologic study, 
uh, we're primarily drinking tea. And if you go, uh, Arno Hasekamp published a paper on conversion of THC acid to THC in tea, and there's not a huge conversion. There is some conversion, but it's nowhere near the amount of uh, conversion that would happen with smoking. So, again, we don't know a ton about, um, about THC acid. Uh, there's speculation that maybe it doesn't get to the brain as easily as the neutral form, delta 9 THC, without the acid. And so maybe it acts more peripherally. We, nobody's looked at whether it crosses the placenta, if you have a baby growing. So, uh, but, but I think it's something to keep in mind that largely at that time they were not smoking. Mm -hmm. So they probably weren't getting huge doses of the neutral cannabinoid THC. Well, great. Thank you for joining us today on Gontrepreneur Podcast, Michelle. Dr. Michelle Sexton is Executive Medical Research Director of the Center for the Study of Cannabis and Social Policy. I'm your host, Shango Lopes of the Vashon Island Marijuana Entrepreneurs Alliance. Thank you for listening to Gontrepreneur. Gontrepreneur.